You can be seated as you do. Let's pray together and find our rest in this mercy that Jesus has promised us. Lord Jesus, your mercy is where we rest. We don't rest in our good works. We don't rest in our morality. We don't rest in anything that we have done or anything that we are or anything that we have. We rest only, solely, totally in your mercy. We thank you for your promise that I'm reminded of in this moment where you said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Rest for your souls. Lord Jesus, thank you for that promise. We come to you now to receive from you that rest. Rest for the deepest part of us. Lord, help us to rest in this mercy that you've given us on the cross, that you have purchased for us, that you've won for us at the cost of your life. Thank you for your mercy. Whatever we lack, it is still what we need most. Our sins, they are many, but your mercy is more. Your mercy is greater. So we thank you, Lord, for the gospel, the good news, all that you have done to redeem us, to save us, to call us out of our darkness and depravity, and to give us your spirit, and to give us your promises and the hope of eternal life. So come, Lord Jesus, come. We long for, to, for you to come and to see you face to face. We gather this morning in, in anticipation of that and to prepare ourselves to wait for you, to, to wait patiently on your promises and on your goodness and kindness. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the special revelation in your word. Thank you for your word that is a joy to our hearts, that delights our souls. But Lord, today I pray that your word, like a hammer, would come and break up the hardness of our hearts. God, to those of us who are apathetic and complacent in this room, I pray your word would, like a flame, set us on fire. God, for those who are playing games with you and who think they have so much more time to turn to your mercy, I pray that you would open their eyes to see that time is short, that life is short and fleeting, and that they would turn away from your wrath and to your mercy. God, teach us about yourself. We want to know you, the one true God. We want to know you and who you are and how you've revealed yourself. And so, would you teach us by your word? In fact, we pray with that old prayer. What we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. Do it for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. So good to see you this morning. I thank God for you, church family. I mean that. I'm not just saying it. I thank God for you. It was, in fact, 10 years ago on Super Bowl Sunday that I preached my first sermon here at Miller Heights Baptist Church 10 years ago. And the reason I remember it was Super Bowl Sunday I hope none of, none of you remember this, but it was Super Bowl Sunday, and we had this like question and answer time uh, before the church uh, voted on whether I would be the senior pastor or not, and one of the questions that someone asked me was who I was rooting for in the Super Bowl, and I gave some lame answer or something, but I always remember that it's on Super Bowl because of that, that question. Ten years ago, 
I didn't even realize it was possible to love a people as much as I love you. And I'm positive that should the Lord give me 10 more years, I'm positive I will love you in ways and in degrees that I don't even realize is possible today. And just maybe, Landon, 10 years from today, the Cowboys might finally be playing in another Super Bowl. But don't get your hopes up. Don't get your hopes up. If you have a Bible, join me in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. In our passage-by-passage study of the book of Romans, we've now reached the main body of this letter. We're going to look specifically at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23 this morning, but I'm going to read this entire passage all the way through verse 32 for us. If you need to grab one of the Bibles in the pew rack in front of you, this is on page 939. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, and we'll read through the the rest of the chapter. And so follow along as I read this shocking truth over us. The Apostle Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. 
though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the authoritative Word of God. May He awaken us to its truth. The burden of this passage is not hard to see, but it is hard to embrace. This passage is obviously about God's wrath against human sinfulness and depravity. We are unrighteous and ungodly, and God's response to that, according to verse 18, is His wrath revealed from heaven. Notice the word against in verse 18. The word against in verse 18 used of God toward our unrighteousness should lay us on our faces. God's wrath is against us in our sin. God's wrath is not just against what we would label as big sins or as really bad sinners. God's wrath is against all of us because as Paul is going to argue for these first three chapters, there's none righteous. Not even one. Not even a single one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have committed the big sins. We are the really bad sinners. All of us. And so this passage, this particular passage, seems to be directed specifically at pagan Gentiles who don't have the law of God, who don't have the promises of God. There's rampant and blatant wickedness going on. And then what Paul's going to do is he's going to shift to thinking about the Jews' sinfulness starting in chapter 2. But Paul labors throughout this passage to make sure that we understand Jews and Gentiles are equally unrighteous in God's sight. And thus all of us, Religious and pagan alike deserve God's wrath because of our unrighteousness and ungodliness. So as we study this passage, we must see our darkened hearts being described here. This is our own futility being described here. So this is a hard truth to swallow. God's wrath is against us. Like opposed to us. God's wrath is not something we like to hear about today. There's not many churches you can go in. There are not many podcasts that you can listen to. There are not many books that you can read that are focused on God's wrath, His anger, His vengeance against our sinfulness and our unrighteousness. God's wrath has fallen victim to our man-centered, politically correct culture. We want to please people and not offend anyone. And so we've sort of put God's wrath on the shelf in the basement. We certainly don't want people to know we believe this, much less that we believe it's relevant for our lives today. Friends, let me remind you, our goal as the church of Jesus is not to please the culture. And our job is not to worship God as we like to imagine Him. Our goal is to be faithful to the Scriptures. God has made no attempt to hide His anger or His wrath or His justice or His vengeance against us. God is not ashamed of His wrath and neither should we be ashamed of it. You see, when we ignore the wrath of God, we rob ourselves of the joy of His love and grace 
toward us. When we ignore the wrath of God, we rob others of the ability to understand what God has done to redeem sinners in Jesus Christ. To be ashamed of the wrath of God is to be ashamed of the Gospel. The Gospel will be lost if we deliberately neglect declaring that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. You see, Paul's point in starting his exposition of the Gospel with the wrath of God and the sinfulness of man, Paul wants us to love the Gospel as true and beautiful and central. He wants us to find our rest in the mercy of Jesus and He knows the only way we'll do that is if we understand how we deserve the wrath of God because of our unrighteousness. The way, the path to loving and cherishing the Gospel is to see the beauty of what Christ has done against the black backdrop of our depravity and our unrighteousness. It is only when we embrace God's wrath against us that we can embrace the wrath-absorbing propitiation of Jesus on the cross that shows us that God is no longer against us, but He is for us. God is for us and not against us in Jesus. That will only sound sweet if we understand that God is against us in His wrath. And so as strange as it sounds, we're going to spend the next four to six weeks in Romans 1 to 3 staring at just how wicked we really are. Paul is going to hammer home that both Jews and Gentiles are wretched and unrighteous before God and God's response to that unrighteousness is His wrath revealed from heaven. Friends, if the end of Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 7 and 8 are going to land on us with a sweetness that changes our lives. It It will be because we have been laid bare by the wrath of God that we all deserve. Romans chapter 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, will only sound like good news if we embrace the fact that in our unrighteousness, we deserve the holy condemnation of our holy God. So notice the connection between verse 18 and the passage we looked at two weeks ago in Romans 1, 16 and 17. Notice the connection. In verse 17, Paul introduces us to the righteousness of God that has been revealed. God has revealed that He is righteous and that He gives His righteousness to others by faith alone. And we would expect, I would expect, the next thing for Paul to do is say for or because and then start describing this gift of righteousness that God has given us in the Gospel. That's what I would expect, but Paul doesn't do that. In chapter 1, verse 18, he starts with the word for, F-O-R, And so he's saying we can't understand the revealing of God's righteousness, the gift of God's righteousness in verse 17, until we understand our unrighteousness and God's response to it, verse 18. In fact, I think chapter 1, verse 18, 
all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, is an intentional parenthesis in Paul's argument. In fact, look over at chapter 3, verse 21. Look at Romans 3, 21. Big shift right here. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested, has been revealed apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So, 117 says the righteousness of God is revealed, and 321 begins to tell us more about that righteousness in the gospel of Jesus that was testified to in the law and the prophets. However, before we can get there, before we can understand the gospel, we must understand our need for the gospel. And that's what chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20, lays out in great detail. We need the gospel because the wrath of God is revealed against our unrighteousness. And so we're going to spend some time going deeper and deeper into the reality of our depravity so that we can prepare ourselves to be changed by the wrath-absorbing sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, God's wrath is His intense hatred of sin and His just response to sin. God's wrath is His active holiness. It is His justice displayed in action. His wrath is the means by which He fulfills His character as just and holy. He carries out His justice through His righteous wrath. And notice that Paul says in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed. The wrath of God is revealed. Notice he doesn't say the wrath of God will one day be revealed. That's also true. The wrath of God will one day be revealed. In fact, Paul will teach that. Look over at chapter 2, verse 5. Paul says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So there's coming a day of wrath. There will be a day of wrath one day. But here Paul emphasizes the present nature of God's wrath against sin that is continually, that is right now, being revealed. And I think the two questions that Paul answers about God's wrath here is, first, why is God's wrath being poured out? And two, how is God's wrath even now, currently, being poured out. Now listen, the how we're going to emphasize next week, God willing. Three times Paul says that God gave them up, referring to sinful mankind. Look at verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And so, little preview of next week, God often pours out His wrath by simply restraining His, by, uh, by removing, by withdrawing His restraining grace. He gives sinners over to what they want. He lets them go in their rampant sinfulness, rampant sexual perversion, rampant murder and pride and slander and envy is evidence of God's wrath 
against our unrighteousness. God gives us over to our fleshly passions in His wrath. And this is a terrifying truth that we need God to help us see next week. But this week, I think the question Paul is beginning to answer in verses 18 to 23 is why. Why is God's wrath being poured out? And the obvious answer to that question is because of our ungodliness, because of our unrighteousness, verse 18. But Paul isn't satisfied here just to give a sort of general nod to our sinfulness. Oh, he gets really specific in this whole section, 118 to 320, about our sinfulness. He tells us the ways that our depravity is manifested. And so let me highlight two ways that Paul shows our unrighteousness here in verses 18 to 23. He says, number one, God's truth is suppressed. And number two, God's glory is exchanged. God's truth is suppressed and God's glory is exchanged. Just look at how he unpacks each of these ways that our unrighteousness is manifested. First, he says God's truth is suppressed. You want to know why God is right now, even now, pouring on His wrath by giving us up to our sinfulness? It's because we suppress the truth of God. God's truth is suppressed. So at the end of verse 18, Paul says this is what we do in our ungodliness. We suppress the truth of God. The word suppress means to restrain something. It means to box it up. Literally, this word is often translated as to physically hold something down, to physically subdue something. The intention behind this word is that it is a deliberate act. You don't suppress something accidentally. You suppress something intentionally. This is a high-handed sin. And in our unrighteousness, Paul says, we do that. We box up, we tie down God's truth. We are so wicked that we intentionally restrain God's truth so that we don't have to deal with it, so that we don't have to face up to it. We ignore God's truth. This is what our sinful hearts do. Now, in verses 19 and 20, Paul shows a particular way that people have suppressed the truth of God. Maybe here Paul is even responding to the question, how can God's wrath be revealed against people who don't even know His truth? And notice how he answers that objection, verses 19 and 20. Paul says, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So Paul says God has made Himself plain and clear. What is true about God and His character are shown in the creation of the world. Paul says the invisible attributes of God are visible in the things He has made. The invisible is seen. The invisible is shown by creation. Creation declares the existence of the power of God. Psalm 19.1, the heavens are telling the glory of God. The skies above proclaim His handiwork. And so Paul is teaching here what is known as general revelation or natural revelation. General revelation 
is how God has made Himself known to every person in the created world. General revelation is not special revelation. Special revelation is the revelation of God in His Word that explains who God is. But general revelation is plain to all. Everyone has this general revelation, Paul says. And so the question often gets asked, maybe you've asked this question before, what about people in remote tribes who have no access to the Bible, who have never heard the gospel, will God pour out His wrath on them? Wouldn't that be unfair? And the answer is no, because God has made His eternal power and His divine nature known to everyone ever created. And He's done that, Paul says, through His creation. So I've actually heard some people teach that we become guilty before God the first time we hear the gospel. If you don't hear the gospel, they say, you can't reject it or accept it, and so you're not accountable to it. But friends, if that were true, the most cruel thing we could ever do is preach the gospel. Right? If people are innocent and, and only become guilty when they reject the gospel, then don't tell them the gospel and they have no guilt. That's not what the Bible teaches. Right here in Romans 1, look at it. We are taught that everyone is unrighteous, even those who have no access to the gospel, because everyone has suppressed the truth of God that is evident in creation. Everyone has done this. Everyone has turned away from the evident and obvious truth of God's existence and His power. Everyone has clearly seen God's power in nature and decided to turn away from that and live for themselves, themselves instead of their Creator. Everything in all of creation is stamped with made by God. Everyone, even the staunchest atheists, can plainly see that this creation did not just happen on its own. But in their pride, they suppress the clear truth that there is a Creator. With the very eyes God has given them, they suppress the truth He has made plain to them. With the very lungs that God has given them, with the very oxygen that God has given to them, they suppress the clear and obvious truth. Friends, that there is creation means there is a creator. And if there's a creator, he deserves total allegiance. The book of Proverbs would say, it's the fool who says there is no God. The existence of music means that there's a composer. The existence of a watch means that there was a watchmaker. The existence of a poem means there's a poet. The existence of creation means there is a creator. Now, Paul is not teaching that general revelation is enough to save anyone. No, no one has ever been saved because they're simply willing to submit to their creator. No, we need special revelation in order to learn about Jesus' sacrifice and the response of faith required in it. And so, general revelation is not sufficient for salvation but it is sufficient for condemnation. General revelation is not sufficient for anyone to be saved by it, but it is sufficient to condemn us because we suppress the truth we clearly see. Everyone has ignored God's power 
Everyone has turned a blind eye to what is evident about God all around them, which is why those of us who know the redemption found in Jesus and the mercy of Jesus that is so rich and abundant, that's why we are compelled to share this gospel with the entire world. Because apart from the news about Jesus and His death and resurrection, no one will be saved. All will be condemned because they have suppressed the truth of God. Notice what Paul says at the end of verse 20. This is a terrifying word. Paul says, So, so, because we have suppressed the truth that is plain to us, that is evident, so they are without excuse. No excuses. This is a terrifying thought. All people are without excuse. No one will be able to say they never heard. No one will be able to say they are innocent. No one will be able to make any excuse for why they suppress the plainly evident truth about God. And friends, it's not just people in remote parts of the world that are without excuse. How much more are we without excuse because of all the light we have been given to suppress the truth of God is to be unrighteous and ungodly. And the wrath of God, Paul says, is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. I know it's true. I know this is a rhetorical question, but ask yourself, have you ever ignored God's truth? Have you ever assumed you know better than God? Of course you have. We all suppress God's truth every moment of every day. We are unrighteous and we deserve Embrace it for yourself. We deserve God's righteous judgment. I deserve the righteous judgment of God. Which, friends, is why we should be eternally grateful that our powerful God is not just a creator. Our powerful God is also a redeemer who redeems through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus died for the ungodly who suppress God's truth. And so may we always and ever say, what a Savior. When we recognize what we deserve versus what we have in Jesus, we ought to be the most grateful people in all of creation who embrace God's truth and do what God says and not suppress God's truth like we did in our sinfulness. That's the first way we see our unrighteousness revealed here. But there's a second way, and it's an even more serious way, and that is God's glory is exchanged. The second way we see our unrighteousness that deserves the wrath of God is we have exchanged the glory of God. And again, this way is more serious than the first one. Why is it more serious? Because this second way is not just something we failed to see and acknowledge. It's not just something that we've kind of glanced at and then turned away from. No, Paul says we've actually made a very terrible trade. Even though we know God exists, we have worshiped created things instead of the Creator. We have robbed God of the glory He alone deserves. Look at verses 21 to 23. Paul says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. 
Now, when Paul says they knew God, he obviously doesn't mean saving knowledge of God. He means they knew God exists. However, even though every human knows God exists from the testimony of creation and conscience, Paul says we do something very tragic with that knowledge. We take that knowledge and we do not honor God as God and we do not give thanks to God as God. We don't thank Him, we don't honor Him, we don't worship Him, but rather we turn away from Him and we exchange His glory for created things. We don't honor God, we don't thank God because we are futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts, he says, are darkened. We're blind. Verse 22, although everyone thinks they're wise, we are in fact fools. This is a description of human depravity. Every part of us is darkened and dead in unrighteousness. And the summary of depravity in verse 23 is this. We exchange the glory of God. Nothing is more important than the glory of God. Nothing in all of creation is more important than God's glory. And we've taken that most valuable thing, we've taken that most treasured thing, and we've exchanged it. We've given it away for other things. We make really, really bad trades. We see God's glory, and we exchange that because we don't want it. And we exchange it for creeping things, for idols, for created things. Sometimes sports teams make really bad trades that haunt them for many, many seasons. Sometimes stock market brokers make really bad exchanges that cost them lots of money. But the worst trades are the trades where we trade something eternal and lasting and satisfying for things that are corrupt and temporary. And these are the kind of trades we make every single day. God, through the prophet Jeremiah, said of His people, He said, they have committed two evils. They have forsaken Me, the fountain of living water, and they have hewn out for themselves cisterns that can hold no water. That is a devastating trade. To turn away from that which is satisfying and turn to things that are bankrupt and brackish. Paul is referring here to the foundational sin of idolatry. Idolatry is worshiping anything or anyone other than God. Whenever we worship or thank or praise something or someone other than God, we are idolaters. In Paul's day and in many places today, people actually make physical idols. They shape statues and shrines. Sometimes they look like beasts and animals and birds and creeping things. The Old Testament is littered with examples of how God's people did this. Think of the golden calf that was made in the wilderness. However, friends, let's not think that we're any more sophisticated or any more righteous because our idols aren't physical statutes or shrines in our houses or in our temples. Friends, don't let your hearts be darkened and so foolish to think that your idolatry is any better. Your and my idolatry is maybe even worse we exchange the, the immortal God, the Creator and His glory for that which is temporary and unsatisfying. John Calvin said that our hearts are like idol factories. We are constantly creating new idols that we look for for satisfaction and peace. How do you know what the idols are in, in your life? Well, ask yourself, the loss of what in my life 
would cause me to feel unstable. And you'll begin to figure out what your idols are. What are the things that cause your chest to tighten up and make you lose sleep? Because we all have a lifelong struggle with idolatry. We all exchange the glory of God. And the quicker we realize that about ourselves, the quicker we can get to the, the path of putting to death the idols that we worship so that we can worship the true and holy and righteous God of creation. Do you fail to honor God as God? Do you fail to give thanks to God as your provider, your protector, your redeemer? If you do, it's because you, like everyone else, make really bad exchanges. We exchange what is glorious, what is beautiful, what is eternal for what is temporary and fleeting. This is the root of all sin. This is the root of all worship problems. We exchange the glory of the immortal God for created things. We take what is true and lasting and satisfying for what is debased and ugly and bankrupt. And so notice what Paul says to us. He says, not honoring God is foolish. Let's get that in our hearts. Not honoring God is foolish. Paul says, not giving thanks to God means that we are blinded. He says, not worshiping God is futile. And look at God's response to our exchanging of his glory. Look at God's response to our foolish worship. Look at verses 24 and 25. Again, we'll get to this next week, but just notice it in this context. Therefore, because we've exchanged the glory of God, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Oh God, help us. So our unrighteousness is manifested in the suppression of God's truth and the exchange of God's glory. This is our story. This is our story. But hopefully, this isn't the whole of our story. And so let me close by just making sure we understand where Paul is going here in this discussion. Let's make sure we understand this reality about the wrath of God that we all deserve. Listen, sin and unrighteousness must be paid for. God's holiness, God's justice demands that all unrighteousness be paid for. And the Bible says there are two options. And Paul is going to lay this out in these next chapters. You can trust in Jesus and have your sins paid for by his blood. He's going to call Jesus the propitiation, the wrath-absorbing sacrifice. Or you can bear the full weight of the wrath of God for your sins in hell. Jesus can pay the price, or you can pay the price for your sins. God's wrath will be dealt out either on Jesus, on the cross, or or on you in hell. God must punish sin. So Jesus willingly bore the wrath of God so that God could show His mercy, so that God could show His righteousness and love and forgiving sinners like you and I. This is who Jesus is. This is why He came. He is the great and perfect Savior. He is the only refuge from the wrath of God. Jesus took God's wrath in our place if we trust in Him. 
And so hear this good news afresh. Let it land on you afresh against the black backdrop of your depravity and your unrighteousness. Because of Jesus, if you are trusting in Him, you will never experience or face the wrath of God even though you are unrighteous and have suppressed His truth and have exchanged His glory. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10. Listen to this. Let this land on you. It says, God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us that we might live with Him. Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Romans 8, 1 again. There is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We deserve the exact opposite of what God has given to us. We deserve wrath and anger and judgment, but God gives grace and mercy and immeasurable riches and sure and eternal joy with Him. We deserve to be given over to our unrighteousness, but we have been made sons and daughters through the precious blood of Jesus. He is the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for sinners. And so hear the gospel truth this morning. If you're in Christ, God is not angry with you. God's wrath has been spent on Jesus on your behalf, and thus His wrath will never touch you. But if you're not in Christ, if you continue to suppress His truth and exchange His glory, the wrath of God is revealed. It's evident in your life and it will one day be the day of wrath. and You will be condemned eternally and forever and ever and ever. Martin Luther once told of a dream he had in which Satan the accuser presented Luther with a long list, a scroll where all of his sins were written. Can you imagine? All of his sins accurately and undeniably recorded. Thoughts, words, deeds of omission and commission, dates, times, and circumstances. Nothing was left out and they almost completely filled the scroll from top to bottom. But Luther said at the bottom there remained a small space. And Luther, after Satan had finished reciting all of his sins, calmly and solemnly replied, now, now right in the space at the bottom, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all our sin. And Luther said at that moment, the accuser fled. Friends, there is only one refuge from the wrath of God that you and I deserve. His name is Jesus. Let's flee to Him now. Let's pray together. Oh God, we are sinners. We are totally depraved. We have suppressed your truth. We have exchanged your glory. Thank you for telling us this. Thank you for reminding us of this. Because we know you have our good in mind. We know that we'll only understand and bask in your abundant mercy if we understand just how wicked we are. Oh God, thank you for saving rebels like us. And I pray you continue that work right now. Continue that work in this room. Rescue your people. Set their feet on the rock of Christ. And help them to rejoice in what you have accomplished for them. God, we thank you. Jesus, thank you.
for being our wrath-absorbing sacrifice. We need you. Whatever we lack, your mercy is what we need most. So, Lord, help us. We thank you that even though our sins are many, your mercy is more. Help us to celebrate that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.